presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Lawmakers this session tightened up the rules for which documents Idahoans can use when they're registering to vote. They eliminated an election date in March for school bonds and levies, and it looks like they also got rid of Idaho's upcoming presidential primary. I'm Logan Finney, filling in for Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Melissa Davlin sits down with Bob Collier from the University of Idaho to discuss veterinarian shortages and what the state can do to address them. Then Secretary of State Phil McGrain joins to talk about the election legislation that passed and failed in the 2023 session. But first, let's get you caught up on the week. Idaho Attorney General Raul Labrador is leading a lawsuit along with several other states to ban the distribution of mifepristone, an FDA-approved drug used to terminate early-stage pregnancies. That lawsuit comes as federal courts out of the states of Washington and Texas have issued conflicting rulings on the continued use of the drug. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland weighed in on Wednesday, saying, quote, the Justice Department will continue to defend the FDA's approval of mifepristone, as well as the FDA's role as the expert body that Congress has designated to make decisions about the safety and efficacy of prescription medicines in this country, end quote. Over the last several years, Idaho lawmakers have discussed critical shortages among healthcare workers in our state, especially in rural areas, but the medical industry isn't the only one that's struggling to attract professionals. In March, lead producer Melissa Davlin sat down with Bob Collier from the University of Idaho's Department of Animal, Veterinary, and Food Sciences to discuss the state of veterinary medicine in Idaho, how our needs reflect the national trends, and what could be done to address the issue. Thank you so much for joining us today. What's the state of veterinary care in Idaho right now? Well, Melissa, there is a shortage of veterinarians in Idaho, and this is part of a national trend uh, that is uh, not unique to Idaho, but is um, a little more severe uh, when you look at the population of rural veterinarians in rural locations. And because there's a very large animal population in Idaho, about 2.7 million cattle and sheep, and uh, probably about 170,000 horses and uh, over a million dogs and cats. So uh, that means that there uh, is really a need for not only uh, veterinarians in rural locations, but large animal veterinarians. This isn't specific to Idaho, but, but what are the causes of these shortages that we're seeing? Okay, so the, um, first, there, there are more openings, so opportunities right now than there are uh, veterinarians to fill those. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier that there are 18 open positions for every veterinarian looking for work. Uh, the um, other causes are that large animal veterinarians um, have uh, their actual income is about 30% less than uh, mixed animal or small animal veterinarians. They leave, uh, graduate with a very large debt load for veterinary school, about $270,000. Uh, 
and the starting salaries uh, are in the sixty to ninety thousand dollar range. So it's difficult for them to keep up with their payments and uh, maintain a rural veterinary practice. So these are kinds of things we were looking at in our task force. You mentioned that the shortages are especially acute in rural areas. When we're looking at Idaho, there's there's a lot of rural counties in Idaho, of right. course. Are there any areas, are any rural counties that are especially affected by these shortages? Well, we have uh, the the greatest concentration of uh, cattle uh, and sheep is in the lower uh, third of, of Idaho. So those counties tend to have more acute issues. Especially that Snake River Plain. Right, right, right. correct. That's where we see the dairies in Magic Valley and, correct. and Treasure Valley. Yep. So, so you were the chair of the Idaho Veterinary Medicine Task Force. What kind of policy proposals might help with these shortages? Well, we looked at uh, several issues. Uh, the first, uh, we currently have uh, 11 slots. The University of Idaho has 11 slots. In, for, for veterinary medicine? For veterinary medicine in, in what's called the WEMO program. That's uh, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Utah uh, consortium with the students uh, from each state going to Washington State veterinary school. We have 11 slots in, in that uh, school system. So we, uh, if you look at all four years then, uh, we'd have 44 students that we support uh, through the state legislature, the out-of-state tuition costs. So these are specifically 11 Idaho students per year who are able to go and get this education at Washington right, State Right, if University. they're selected. Sure. It's a very competitive process uh, we have about three applicants for every uh, open slot, so that uh, makes it a very competitive uh, process. Also, uh, you don't have to be a graduate of the University of Idaho. You just need to be a resident of Idaho to uh, apply. So there are graduates of other schools who are Idaho residents who also apply, so it is a, a very competitive process. Now, we looked at that as, as one piece what can we do to expand uh, the number of students? But right now, uh, one of the problems inside the WIMU program is that there is no requirement for them to stay in Idaho once they have finished. Now, most um, states that have programs where they want to locate students in the state, they provide tuition support in return, they sign a contract to stay in the state after graduation. Uh, one of our recommendations is to adopt that uh, requirement that we uh, ask that students who are supported in this program locate to a rural location or stay within the state of Idaho after graduation. That's a requirement that's going to sound familiar to people who have been following the healthcare worker shortages right. in Idaho for a long time because those are discussions that came up with the rural nurse tuition repayment program, the WAMI yep. program for exactly. medical students. In fact, this is uh, modeled very closely to the WAMI, uh, what's called the TRUST program. They're targeted rural underserved track of physicians. So uh, what we're saying is we'd like to expand our 
our group of students from 11 to 20, and uh, also develop a what's called a one plus three program, where the first year they're at Idaho, and in that first year, 10 of the 20 are selected for rural track, and those 10 would receive tuition support throughout their entire program. Um, which, uh, if they locate to a rural location, they don't have to pay back. Uh, if they don't locate in Idaho in a rural location, they would have to reimburse the state for that. And the other uh, 10 students who uh, are in the WEMU program but are not large animal or rural veterinary track, uh, they would just be required to stay in the state of Idaho, not uh, to any specific location. So they could be small animal veterinarians in Coeur right. d'Alene or Idaho Falls. Correct. Got it. Uh, you presented these policy proposals to the legislature earlier this year. How did lawmakers receive those proposals? They were well received in both the Senate and the House. In the House, uh, Representative Lori McCann has uh, volunteered to draft a, a bill and uh, of course that uh, our uh, part in the process is over now that we finished our report but we did offer our uh, support in providing any information they need to write this legislation. It won't be considered very likely this year uh, because We're it's too late in the, the session. Mm -hmm. Yeah, So we'll we uh, we're hopeful that uh, next year there will be a proposal uh, ready to be evaluated by the legislature. Election security and voter integrity have been at the top of lawmakers' minds for several years now, and this legislative session was no different. Secretary of State Phil McGrain joined me on Friday morning to run through which changes passed, which failed, and what voters need to know the next time they head to the polls. Joining me to discuss what happened with elections and voting this session is Secretary of State Phil McGrain. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you, Logan. So, Secretary of State McGrain, tell me a bit about how the session went for the Secretary of State's office. What came out of this year? Yeah, you know, I think one of the big things for me is this is a start of a new role and a new job. So, uh, it's been an absolute privilege stepping into this role. Uh, and I just never imagined how consuming it would be to be involved with the legislature, um, especially just being there in the Capitol, in and among legislators. I think one of our big successes this session was I reached out to all the legislators at the beginning. And even if there were policy issues that we may not agree upon, um, I was really fortunate to have a good working relationship with legislators coming by. Um, chatting with us. Um, this year, just like in previous, the past two years, House Bill 1 was an elections bill, which meant, I mean, I, we hit the ground running in terms of election policy discussions. Uh, but, you know, this year, I think overall was, it, it ended up in a really successful point in terms of voters. We made some improvements. We also ensured some things didn't come to fruition that were being discussed. And overall, I, I, you know, I feel good coming out of the legislature. All right, well, let's dive into a few of those policy proposals. When we had you on the show early on in the year, one of the big topics you talked about was putting together or possibly expanding Idaho's voter guide. Um, tell me what the voter guide currently has in it, what you wanted to add, and why that didn't go anywhere. Yeah, you know, it, unfortunately, it didn't get to where we wanted it to, as you well know. Um, one of the big things, the most common request we get from voters is, 
I, they want to know what they're going to be voting on. You know, everyone, when they head to the polls, they know who they're going to vote for president, but they often don't know who their legislators are or who their county officials are or any of the other things that are going to be on the ballot. And so we want to get that information. Right now, the state provides a voter pamphlet that includes any initiatives, referendums, constitutional amendments, but doesn't provide candidate information. And so that was one of my priorities going into the session was to talk about that. Uh, we did get the bill through the Senate. Um, JFAC also, at least tentatively, seemed interested in funding it. Um, but when it got to the House, we didn't get all the way through the process in terms of legislature. Um, I don't. It's not an issue I'm done with because it is a really popular topic. We're looking at what can we do with the the voteidaho.gov website. Um, that's the main resource for people to register to vote, request absentees. There may be opportunities we can do more there. Um, but I do think voter information and education is just as crucial as making sure we have access to the ballot. And so if voters come to you and say they'd like these resources, we want more information, why do you think lawmakers weren't so enthusiastic about creating this new guide? You know, I'd say probably one of the first things was just the expense. Uh, along with that was a $750,000 request to fund that. That sounds like a ton of money, but when you're talking over a million registered voters that we need to produce it for, um, it actually, you know, just covers what we need. Uh, I think that was one of the big things. I also think, you know, there's a question about what the role of the state is. For me, I think it's important that we're providing information to voters. There are some lawmakers who feel like, no, there's plenty of private resources out there available for voters to access. And so I think that's one of the questions, and I think we'll continue to discuss, you know, how can we do that right balancing act? Um, but when I talk to voters, people want to make informed decisions. And so as a secretary, we're going to continue to work towards that. And so with that policy bill not being implemented, JFAC didn't give you the money to actually put this guide together. Um, what else in your budget this year coming out of session are you excited about to uh, put into use? You know, I think one of the greatest things, and I really uh, have to express a lot of appreciation to the legislature, is the investment that we're making in elections. You know, one of the bills we had, House Bill 11 this year, was to say no private money should be funding our elections. That was a hot topic over the campaign cycle. During the uh, campaign, we heard yeah, a lot about that. We heard a lot about Zuckerbucks and everything else, and so we said as a state, no, we, we do not want private money coming in to fund our elections, but just as important with that is making sure that the state does invest in our elections, and that's what the legislature did. I had asked for $10 million to invest in our crucial election systems, so this is the voter registration system, the election management system used by all the county clerks throughout the state, um, lobbyists and campaign finance reporting systems, and I'm happy to say the legislature saw the importance of that. You know, if we want integrity in our elections, that means we have to fund the tools, making sure that everything runs smoothly in terms of our elections, but also that we're keeping information secure. Uh, voters' personal information secure, but also protecting the actual votes. Um, and so that's where our office, now that we're done with the legislative session, well, we'll be using the new positions that they gave us, as well as, well as that $10 million, to go out and make the in crucial upgrades to our election systems. And in addition to upgrading the physical and digital and equipment side of the election system, there's also maintaining the data and the information, the list of people who are registered to vote. Um, your office just finished cleaning up those voter rolls, is that right? Yeah, so a year ago it was interesting. The legislature passed a bill saying that I needed to update them annually on what we do to maintain our voter rolls. Um, important for an election is maintaining a clean list of who's registered to vote. Uh, that includes capturing any time you know, someone passes 
doesn't weigh, someone moves out of state, um, they're convicted of a felony, anything like that. And so routinely, our office in combination with the county clerks are going through and cleaning up those rolls. Um, we do that process after every general election uh, as well as on an ongoing basis for some of those like vital statistics information. And so over the last year, uh, we actually removed about 75,000 uh, voters from the rolls. Um, that covers all sorts of different reasons, but we provided an update to the legislature to let them know, hey, we're monitoring this. We're working with our partners at ITD, Vital Statistics, and others to make sure we keep the list clean. Uh, it's a hot topic nationally right now, and so I'm just proud to report that Idaho is doing its part to make sure we keep our roles as accurate as possible. And we're very fortunate in Idaho to have same-day registration, so that it's just as easy on the other side to register to vote for anybody who's moving into our state. That brings us right to where I wanted to go next, was actually registering to vote. So there were some pieces of legislation, some policy bills floating around to change the ways that you can register, what sort of identification you can use. Um, can you tell me about those bills and what passed, what people need to know when they go to sign up to vote? Yeah, that was one of the big priorities for me was just to clarify and clean up. There was a lot of information out there. Um, we would often hear stories of someone using their Costco card or um, as Representative Mitchell, who worked really closely with me on this bill, he would say he could use his scuba diving card to register to vote or an Amazon box. And um, that breeds distrust in the elections when people aren't certain. And we had two different standards of identification. So we have a really specific standard of ID to vote. That's the when you show your driver's license when you go vote. When you walk up to a poll worker. When you walk up to a poll worker. But when you were registering to vote, it was really vague and really broad. So actually the way people were administering it was correct under the law. But we wanted to better align our ID requirements for voting with our registration requirements. And that's one of the key things that we did. Representative Mitchell and I worked really closely together to identify what are the types of ID to prove you are who you say you are. Um, overwhelmingly, voters use their driver's license. That shouldn't surprise anybody. Um, but also, what types of documentation can you use to prove your residence? And it's a pretty comprehensive list. I mean, we were able to cover everything from really simple things like a deed of trust or you know a utility bill, but even help address issues like homelessness and how does someone who's homeless register to vote? Um, and we make sure that we have them captured properly. Um, so I feel really proud about uh, House Bill 340 and what we were able to do. I mean, the simple thing for voters to your ultimate question, you know, what do you need is bring your ID, whether it's your driver's license, passport, uh, military ID, any of those uh, show up and you have that identification and then a proof of residence. And honestly, the thing that we often see most is like if people look in their glove box, uh, their insurance card will be up to date with their address and that's sufficient to be able to register. Um, but there's numerous other pieces of documentation uh, that can be now used and it makes it simpler for poll workers or groups that are out registering people as well because it says here are the exact types. It's, it's no longer open for interpretation. Now it standardizes it across the state to make sure that we can all have confidence that when people register, they are who they say they are, um, but also that we can make it simple to administer and easy for voters to be able to have that documentation when they hit to the polls. They are who they say they are and they live where they say they are. And they live where they say, yes, just as important that they are a resident of the state of Idaho when they're registering to vote. And a form of identification which is not able to be used anymore in Idaho is student IDs, correct? That correct. bill got a lot of attention. 
Yeah, the student IDs, um, specifically, so that ID form that you could use to vote, um, student IDs were removed from that list. And, you know, the concerns, the conversations that uh, we had was just about the security concerns in terms of the standards used to produce student IDs. They're generally just made on, you know, desktop printers for identification cards. That's different than like a state-issued ID or some of the other forms of passport or whatnot. Um, I'm happy to report, like, yes, that got a lot of attention on the student ID piece, but one, it was extremely rarely used. It was about two-tenths of a percent of, uh, uh, of voters were the ones actually using student IDs, but it's important to me to make sure we didn't deter access. You know, a theme that was often said by me on numerous bills throughout the legislative session is that we can have secure elections and maintain access. We don't have to restrict access and, and in order to have security. And so House Bill 340 also included a free ID card to anybody who needed it, whether that's a student who needs a free ID card or it's a senior or anybody else, you know, just someone who's not able to drive. Um, they can now get a free ID card for voting purposes. And I think that's a really important upgrade to make sure we increase the security, but we also maintain access. That is important for people to know. It's not just getting rid of an option, but replacing the IDs with something I, else. I think there were numerous legislators who probably would not have voted for the student ID thing if they didn't know there was going to be this other alternative to provide those free ID cards. Because I know there's numerous legislators who want to make sure that their constituents have access. And in Idaho, compared to many other states, we're very fortunate that we have, it's easier to register, whether that's online, at the polls, than many other states across the country. And when it comes to actually doing the process of voting, some lawmakers also took a run at changing absentee ballot access as well as identification affidavits. Um, if people are familiar with those processes, is there anything that changed that they need to know about? You know, on both of those fronts, nothing actually changed. I think one of the big things, and we've gotten lots of questions in the office, is about absentee voting. There was a lot of talk about uh, limiting who could request an absentee ballot or what circumstances someone could request an absentee ballot, but nothing actually changed. The process is still the same. Uh, people can go to the voteidaho.gov website and request an absentee ballot or then go visit their local county clerk's office and fill out a request form. That, that process remains the same and Idaho voters still have access. Um, I think it's just important to note too for your viewers is in Idaho, you can vote on election day. We have polling places throughout the state. Um, you can vote early for the weeks leading up in person at your local elections office, or any Idahoan can request an absentee ballot. Whether they're voting here in the state or they're gonna be traveling, they can make that request and vote uh, in any upcoming election. Okay. One of the other areas I wanted to talk to you about is the March election. Um, the big property tax bill, school funding bill that passed got rid of school's ability to run bonds and levies on the previous March election date. Um, you're not a schools guy, but you're an election guy, so I wanna ask you, when it comes to the county clerks across the state, getting rid of that date, how much of a change is that for them when it comes to workload and scheduling elections? You know, I, I would say I'm not a schools guy, but I've certainly got kids in public education here in the state, and so I appreciate all that our schools do. I thought it was one of the interesting things. Had you asked me going into the legislative session, would anything change regarding the March election date? I would have said there's no way, but yet here we are. There is no longer a March election for anything. Um, certainly county clerks were supportive because running uh, an election so close to another election, which is the March and the May dates are so close to one another, it's t a tough turnaround time. So this really provides some breathing room for the county clerks, especially as we lead into, so if we look at uh, next year in the 2024 election, um, the primary elections, both at the national level as well as the state level, will be very busy. Uh, this gives a lot more lead time for the clerks to get the materials prepared, to get ballots issued to voters and everything to run smoothly. 
I do think uh, over the interim, we're going to see more conversations about election consolidation and dates. For voters, they just want to know when to show up to vote. And it can be hard knowing there's all these different options. Um, there was other legislation looking at city elections and some of the others that was taken up, that, but that didn't pass. And I think this is going to trigger a further conversation to say, how do we increase information to voters, just like we talked about with the voter guide, but also how do we balance when we hold these various elections? If you talk to any of the school districts, that's an important balance for them, is making sure they have the tools to be able to run the bonds and levies they depend on. And so I, I hope to be involved in those conversations in their interim, looking at what we do in the future. Lawmakers did not only eliminate that school's election in March, they also passed a bill to combine Idaho's presidential primary with the regular primary held in May. That move saw some opposition from Republican officials who say their party membership didn't get the chance to weigh in on it. Most of you are new, some of you new folks, you weren't here when we went from a caucus to the closed primary. And it was quite a bit of work, and there was a lot of agreement between the legislature and the Idaho Republican Party. But the fact that the two folks that are sponsoring the bill on the House and the Senate side never reached out, at least to the chairwoman to discuss this, the fact that I only spoke to the Secretary of State one occasion in regard to this bill, and I still would like to see us move the primary up even further. This is gonna be the most exciting presidential primary in my lifetime. I don't know what the, what the Democrat Party will do. I know what I will recommend the Republican Party do. Let's have a say in this. Let's, let's, get, let's get candidates to Idaho so that Idaho issues and Western issues are actually considered. Lawmakers ultimately passed the bill to move the presidential primary, but declined a bill that would have reincorporated certain steps of the process back into law. And without those procedures, there is no legal mechanism to hold a presidential primary in Idaho for 2024. On Friday, I asked Secretary McGrain for his thoughts. What are your reactions to the party's concerns? You know, I think it was an interesting conversation. The discussion regarding the presidential preference primary really came out initially just my budget. So Secretary Denny, uh, leading up when he had submitted the initial budget, had $2.5 million to pay for the presidential election. And JFAC members and others started asking about the investment in that. And so it spurred a conversation about, should we still be holding the March primary? We had moved it up a few years ago, um, both to get more national attention, um, and other things and you know there's debate in terms of how much participation we've seen from candidates um, Donald Trump won both of the primaries that we've had here for the state in the Republican primary uh, but yes yeah, still hasn't been to the state of Idaho um, I talked to uh, uh, Chairwoman Moon as well as Chairwoman Nekachia early uh, on in the process just to talk about what we we're doing I think for many people and I heard this from Chairwoman Moon is a desire to actually move Idaho's primary up even further like if it could be in February the legislature wasn't real keen on that idea. Um, one of the other topics that came up was participation having two different primaries. Uh, one of the things we've seen is some drop off in the May state primary because voters are showing up to vote in March for president and they think they've already voted. And so when it comes to the May election, they get confused, like, I already had a primary, why are we doing this now? And so uh, House Bill 138 was to, as you said, to move the March presidential primary and re-merge it back with the state primary in May. Um, unfortunately, in the process, uh, as uh, Commissioner Beck pointed out, there were some mechanical issues with the bill, and so we had a trailer bill to try and sync that up, um, but the trailer bill didn't go through. So what ended up happening ultimately is we did remove the March presidential primary, um, but unfortunately it didn't actually 
actually get moved onto the May date. Um, if we're gonna do that, we're gonna have to do something at the beginning of next session. Right now, actually, where it puts uh, the situation is with the parties, both the Republican Party as well as the Democratic Party are going to have to work with their national committees in terms of, you know, do we hold a caucus, do we hold a, a party-run primary or something else. Um, a lot of this was related to participation as well as funding. And so I think there's gonna be more conversations. I had anticipated that trailer bill going through and us all voting uh, in May. I think that's what most legislators thought that they were voting on at that point in time. So I, I, I know we'll have more conversations uh, during this year, but we do have a presidential election coming up. You know, certainly in our office, 2024 is very square in our vision in terms of getting ready. Uh, I know for the parties, there's more and more conversations as candidates are starting to get more engaged in the political process. And so um, we'll be having more conversations about that leading up through the summer. All right, and us at Idaho Reports, will keep an eye on that as well as things start to heat up over the summer. Secretary of State Phil McGrain, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it was great to be with you, Logan. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.